0: Starting a two week mini series. Uh, I remember thinking before I went on vacation that we would do what we typically do every summer when, when I come back or before we launch in the fall. There's usually a couple of weeks after guest speakers or a summer series where we do a bit of a reset. The purpose is just to remind ourselves as the Rock Church, you know, why we are a church. What is the church? Who are we as Christians? What is our, our role in the church, in the community, in the world? You know, what did Jesus really have in mind, (laughs) right? And so this year, uh, as I was thinking forward to it and wanting to pray about it as I was away and prepare a couple of messages, I thought of the title that you see on screen, Politics, the Church, and the Christian. (laughs) So I, I had more than a few people say to me, now you have me worried, right? Like, what are you going to be talking about? I mean, I have no idea why I chose the subject or title, Politics, Well, yeah, I think I do, right? So, a couple of reasons why we're doing this series. As I've already alluded to, the first is it's a bit of a reset. It's for all of us who are part of the Rock Church. There's nothing wrong with a reminder. Is there like a recap of going over? Because we can get again, you can get into the regular rhythm of doing life, doing church, and forget sometimes what it's really all about. Why are we here? Why are we doing this? Secondly, uh, every year since we've planted this church, as I've already said and we've already seen, go figure people move away. But then, God, Did we pray every day, by the way, as leaders and and many people in our church at 10.02 every day. We have our clocks, our iPhones, all of our phones set to to alarm at 10.02 so that we can pray Luke 10.2, which is praying to the Lord of the harvest that He would send laborers into His harvest to labor here with us. And God's amazing at answering prayer because every summer, it's interesting, we get all sad and upset because we're losing some people, but God usually multiplies the new people that come to the church over the summer by a factor of two that leave. So it's really, really remarkable. And that has been happening as well. So this is good for some of you who are new with The Rock in the last year, uh, or maybe just visiting today for you to get um, an idea of who we are and what we believe and, and how that lives out in our life as a church. But thirdly, of course, there's that title, politics. And let's be clear. Let's be really honest. We live in very interesting times, don't we? This is our cafe. It's open five days a week. We have people who are coming to the cafe who are skeptics, who are atheists, who are non-Christians. They know who we are. They know who I am. We have conversations from time to time. And sometimes they'll look at me and go, Based on what I'm seeing on television that's going on, I'll just say South, uh, you know, what is with you, white evangelical Christians? I would suggest to you that many skeptics, many atheists, many non Christians have a view of the church, sadly, that is our fault. The church's fault. We're responsible for the, the image that we give. So I think, without naming names or getting too much into Twitter hashtags today, we need to look at that. And that's so that's a bit of what I want to look at with you today. So there's gonna be two messages this week. We'll be looking at politics and the church, and then next week we'll look at and, and what that role of the church, if any, should be in politics, in government, etc. And then next week we'll have a look at the subject of politics and the individual Christian and how you might be involved in politics and and government and so forth. Sound like fun? Okay, so we need to start with a couple of definitions. First definition we'll start with is the definition of politics. Um, We'll look at that, and then of course we're going to spend much more time looking at the definition of the church. And I'm hoping, without actually getting into specific names or parties or political agendas, just by going through what the church really is with you, what Jesus really had in mind, the questions will be answered. The questions will pretty much be answered. So let me put on screen for you, a, I think, an overall good definition that I found of the subject of politics, and it is this. Politics are the activities associated with the governance of a country or an area, especially the debate or conflict among individuals or parties having or hoping to achieve power. So it's kind of a complex but pretty simple, really, definition of politics. So regardless of the form of government, whether the government is parliamentary like Canada and like Great Britain, uh, or whether it's a republic, a democracy, whether it's socialist or a socialistic democracy, right, whether it's a a communistic, whether it's a dictatorship or even a monarchy, politics is about achieving activities associated with governing. And the key word that I see in that passage or that definition, I'm not sure if you do, is about not only getting, but having and holding on to power, right? Now, that should be right away to the Christian who reads his Bible, a little bit of a tip-off that there's something different between Jesus and the church and power, or the desire to get and hold on to power over people. And so this power is the power to control a country or a region or a people. And, of course, every leader that uh, I've ever seen that comes out and says, well, here's my agenda, here's my platform, why don't you vote for me? Like, most of them, they want us to believe, right, that they're totally, completely benevolent, right? Like, I have your best interest at heart. I think this is what will make our country prosperous. This will help us flourish. And, of course, so they they all feel that way, that they're the benevolent ones, and that's the way they want to present, present themselves, and, of course, at least 50% of the people or the people, the majority that vote for them, agree with them. But then there's the other 50% or less that don't quite see them that way as these benevolent, truly benevolent leaders. And so, the end, in the end, power is necessary, I would suggest, in politics to ensure that your ideas and policies are enforced. Interestingly, do you know when the first use of the word politics was ever made in history? Hmm. Does anyone know? It's interesting, the timing. It was in the year 350 A.D., which is right around the time of the marriage of the church and the state, Constantine, the Roman Empire, and the Roman Catholic Church. His name was the philosopher Aristotle. It's interesting, isn't it? That's my definition of politics for today. I don't really want to talk about it too much more, but there you go. That's a good definition, I think, and a bit of a picture of politics. So what about the church? How do we we define the church? And we're going to spend most of our time here this morning on this. Well, let's start, first of all, with this this statement that is a statement of truth. The church was Jesus' idea, not Aristotle. No man... No politician, no governor, no ruler. Well, wait a second. Jesus is a ruler. The church was Jesus' idea and his alone. No one had ever thought of it before Jesus, right? So let's start with the first use of the word church in the New Testament. Those of you who are rocksters, you know we've been over this many, many times. We we get the name of our church, right? From Matthew 16, 18, which is where that word shows up for the first time in the scripture. I mean, the setting is important for us to know, though. It's in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus has been about his ministry for about two years at this point in time. He has gathered a lot of followers, some who really believe in him and trust and believe that he could well be the Messiah, the Son of God. And they're loving him, but they're not sure how this is all going to work out. And then there, of course, are the religious leaders who are following him and political leaders, and they're, they're really not quite sure about him at all. It would appear that he seems to be a bit of a threat to their power. And so it gets to a point, it's a really interesting point, after he's been preaching and healing the good news of the kingdom of God, healing the sick, performing incredible miracles, he arrives at the gates of of the city Caesarea Philippi, and he decides at this point in time that he's going to look his disciples in the eye, and he asks them some really, really cool question, important question. He says, he asks, who do people say that I am? I mean, I remember the first time I read that, or actually should say read it and thought about it, I'm thinking, like, okay, Jesus, you must think pretty highly of yourself. I mean, you think people are talking about you. Well, the truth is, in that day, they were. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were following him, being fed by him, being healed by him. So people were, in fact, aware of him and speaking about him. Well, the disciples, at first, they respond. They say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist or Elijah of course, resurrected from the dead because they're both dead. And, and, and so they say that. Jesus then personalizes it, which is what Christianity really is all about when it comes to faith. It's about a personal decision. He looks at his disciples in the eye and he says, who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Well, Peter not known for necessarily getting things right the first time, he blurts out, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Pretty proud of himself? (laughs) He got it right. Jesus brings him down a notch, a little bit, and he says to him, he says, well, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood, however, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this truth to you. But good for you. His testimony of faith is really important because then Jesus says this, and it's the first use of the word church in the Bible. He says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We've been over this many times as a church, so I don't have to highlight all of it to you. But I mean, the reality is, is that Peter, the name Peter is Petros and, and then Petra, small rock, big rock. Jesus is essentially saying this, based on your correct testimony of faith in me, I will build my church upon people with people who declare that same thing. But the key is, I, I want us to see this morning, is, is that he's cl- clearly saying to his disciples and to all of us in this one verse, by the way, this is my church. I'm the one who's going to build it. Oh, I got to tell you, as a pastor, when there are days when I think it's my fault the church isn't growing or, 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 or people are not leaving their sins or whatever's happening, and I realize, you know what, dear, my wife tells me this all the time, honey, it's not up to you. It's not about you. <laughs> Thank you, honey. Um, but it's it's he is the one building his church, amen. And yet we're called to be part of it. That's exciting, and it will be based on the exact testimony. Now, the, the Greek word that's used here is really important. It's a great word. It, it is the Greek word is the word ecclesia that Jesus uses, and it's such an interesting word. We translate the word church. Uh, primarily because of the German for, during the time of the Reformation of the church back in the 1600s, from the German word, I'm not going to even try to pronounce it in the German because every time I do, those people who are in our church who are German, they always tell me that they laugh, right? They go, your German's terrible. So I'm going to spell it. It's K-I-R-C-H-E, Kirch, right? That's not how you pronounce it in German, right? But, but, but you can see how we got the word Church for our translations. We actually get the English, as I said, from that. Now, now Ecclesia, on the other hand, uh, literally from the mouth of Jesus could be recorded and translated this way, a gathering of called out people from their homes. Now, that's one word, and you're thinking like, that's, that's an awfully long translation of the one word. But the people who heard Jesus say that, the disciples, that's what they would have understood. And Here's why primarily. It's interesting as well. The word ecclesia was a very popular word in that culture. It was a word that was used when any Roman governors, tribunes, councils of cities wanted to call a public gathering of the people so that they could tell them the news about what's changing retaxes or new drainage ditches or new buildings in the community. And they would call an ecclesia. And people would be called out from their homes to this gathering to hear the news. Jesus uses that word. That's the beginning of the church comes that. So then literally what Peter and all the disciples would have heard would be a translation that would look like this. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my gathering of called-out people, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against them. And so part of the reason why I want to highlight this to you is something that we've practiced for about seven, eight years as a church, is really trying to be very careful about Christianese right? Because even the word church, I mean, you hear it, if you're not a Christian here today, you're a skeptic, you're watching online, you're probably like, yeah, church, organized religion. You know, like there's definitions that people automatically, you know, hypocrites, (laughs) whatever, you know, they they automatically associate with church. And so we try very carefully as a church not to, um, or I should say this, better explain ourselves when we make certain statements. Because people here, for example, people, they they hear this, you know, they hear people go, you know, this is the Bible. It's a book. And, and I like to say to people, and we've been saying to people, actually, no, it's not a book. And some Christians go, oh, pastor, what are you doing? Well, what I'm doing is I want to actually articulate for you and for me what it really is so that people who don't know Jesus and are far from God will actually know what this thing is and that we might articulate that better. This is a collection of books 66 books, in fact, written over a period of 1,500 years by over 40-plus authors, all saying the exact same story. That's a good definition of what this is, don't you think? Better than it's a book, right? And then, then there's the one that, that you hear a lot, and people say, well, you know, especially when you're in a debate with a non-Christian, whatever you, well, the Bible says. I, I used to say that all the time. I try really hard not to say that anymore because, you know what? This thing does not have lips that I'm holding right here. It's it's simulated leather. It's not real, right? So, truthfully, the idea is this. No, actually, when we hear the words, go make disciples, the Bible doesn't say that. Jesus said that, right? Recorded by Matthew. And so, we like to be careful about things like that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Moses, right? Peter, James, they said these things. And so, if, again, if you're not a Christian, you're a skeptic, you're listening and going, okay, so we're, we're looking at a book that, yes, the last recorded books of this Bible are written over 1,900 years ago, but they're written by people, and in the cases of the New Testament, people who were eyewitnesses to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's pretty significant. But the last issue is we we try to be very careful about saying things like, well, yeah, uh, are you going to church tomorrow? Or listen, uh, I want to invite you to church, right? So we're very careful about that language because we don't go to church. Why? Because we define church this way. Church is not a building, a place, or an event. The church is us, the called out ones of Jesus who gather together on Sunday and gathered together as the church. Now, some of you might say, come on, pastor, that's just semantics. And I just want to encourage you that it's not semantics. And again, if you speak to people who are far from God, who don't have really a clue about what the Bible teaches, they only hear things like the Bible says, I want to thump you with it, you know, things like that. um, This is good news because it's like, I didn't know that. And so I want you to share that way as well, what it goes into. So I want us to understand, I think, the word better, ecclesia, the church, and that it was first used by Jesus, therefore proving it was his idea. But let me ask you one more question related to the church. Was the church Jesus' goal? We know it was his idea, but was the church his goal? I mean, did he come to earth and say, I want to, you know, I want to live a good life, a perfect life. I want to preach the kingdom of God. I want to heal people, heal the sick. And and then I want to start this church thing, and I want to call people out, and then I want to send them to go plant churches, and and basically that's it. That's the goal until I come again. I want to suggest to you it wasn't his goal. In fact, it was part of the goal, of reaching the goal, a tool or a vehicle to reach the goal. If, if you read the Gospels, only three times in the Gospels is the word ekklesia, called out once, used every time by Jesus. It's used a total of 144 times in the New Testament, the translation uh, ESV that we're using. But I want to show you a word that is really the goal of Jesus Christ today that is used way more in the New Testament. It's used way more by Jesus. So there's the church, and then there is the... Does anybody know what that word might be? That was the thing that Jesus was really all about? That was really his goal? I know many of you are mostly Baptist, but you can speak out. Thank you. The kingdom. The kingdom is what Jesus was all about. Now, here's an interesting thing. Just to decide before I show you why I say that and why it's important that we understand that in relation to who and what the church is, is... Our whole culture, our whole world, from the day it was created, has been about kingdoms. It starts in the book of Genesis, right? When the sovereign God, the sovereign ruler says, let there be light. And God created the heavens and the earth, right? He, he called things into existence. He spoke things into existence. So from the very beginning, we have a sovereign. But then, when it gets to the sixth day and he creates you and I, man and woman, he says, let them have dominion. This is kingdom language. He's the sovereign. We're not the sovereign rulers of this creation. We are the stewards under God who should be caring for the environment in this world and for the people in it. But there's dominion language throughout the whole Scripture, throughout all of history, kings and rulers and kingdoms. I mean, even today, of course, we have the united kingdom, right? We have Britain and all of its colonies. Do you realize that the formal name of our country, Canada, is actually the dominion of Canada? And of course, we have the Saudi kingdoms. But the reality is, as we'll see in our text here, every country is a kingdom unto itself. And so there is a kingdom issue going on in our world today. It starts really with Jesus. Uh, You'll remember that after he was baptized by John the Baptist, and we went through this, we went through the Gospel of Matthew, he's baptized by John the Baptist, which signals the beginning of his earthly ministry, and and you think at that point, okay, he's baptized, the Son of God is here, the Lamb of God, John points to him and says, follow him, right, my work is done, you'd think Jesus is going to just start building his church, right? That's not what happens. The first thing that happens is, the Holy Spirit takes him by the hand, leads him into the wilderness, so that for 40 days and 40 nights, he can be tempted by the devil, by Satan himself. And Satan tempts him three times. The first two times are unsuccessful. And so Satan just tries one last temptation. And we read this in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, where it says this, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him, look at this, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So I'm pretty sure that Satan showed him, I mean, not only the kings of that time, we don't know for sure, but he may have had the ability to be able to show God the future, Jesus the future. So, hey, look how glorious the United States is, Canada, totally amazing. Like, look at Saudi Arabia, the United Kingdom. You're like Look at all those things, the glory of them. And then he says, all these I, Satan, will give to you if... You will fall down and worship me, like he had the ability to give those to Jesus. Well, we know the story. How the story ends? There, Jesus says, "Yeah, get behind me, Satan. Forget it." Why? Because he has come to establish his kingdom, and he knows that he is the king to come. And he knows also that there are only really, at the end of the day, only two kingdoms have always only been two kingdoms are only two kingdoms today. There is the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. And so Jesus comes back from this temptation, successful, victorious over defeating Satan in the way that Adam and Eve failed, which was important to establish. And what is the first thing Jesus does now? Well, well, it's interesting. In verse 17, it says this, from that time, Jesus began to preach. I love saying this because many people think of Peter, you know, on the day of Pentecost or or great preachers that we know in our world today, the greatest preacher of all time. The most gifted preacher of all time is Jesus. And that's what he was. He was a preacher more than anything. And he preaches saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, literally what he's saying is, I'm initiating it. I'm inaugurating it. It's here now in me. It begins today. And so now what he does is awesome. In verses 18 and 19, we read in Matthew, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, for I will make you fishers of men. Jesus calls them out of their whole life at that time. Their fishing business, fishing, their family, their homes, their community. Is this where the church started? Because that's a question, right? People, well, when did the church start? Was it the day of Pentecost when Jesus said, I will build my church in Matthew 16, 18? Or what about here? He's calling people out, and certainly these two people, Peter and Andrew, are part of the church. Amen? So that's interesting. But I just point that out to you for that purpose. And so then he calls out uh, two more after that, James and John, right? So he, and, and probably there are more, but it's only recorded in Matthew that he, he calls out four men, and then what he does is he, he starts a Bible study, right? And he teaches them basic theology, right? So you guys got to get it down, you got to get it nailed, because if, if you were going to be my apostles, which I'm going to turn you into one day, you're going to be fishers of men, and I'm going to really gift you, like, I need to teach you some theology. no. What Jesus does is what we should be doing with anyone who we're leading in faith in Christ or discipling to grow in Christ is He takes them on a road trip. He takes them into service. It says in verse 23, and He, Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee with these people who He's called out. And look what it says, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus goes on throughout the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all you continually repeat repeat all he keeps doing. Yes, he's healing. Yes, he's feeding. He's preaching the kingdom. The kingdom is the deal. It's what it's all about. I mean, the book of Acts is remarkable, right? It, we we read at the very beginning of the book of Acts, I mean, Jesus has risen from the dead, right? He's shows himself for 40 days to all of his disciples, to over a 1,000 people at one time. So it's recorded, most of the people, all of his disciples, the apostles for that matter, who saw him risen from the dead, went to their deaths because they would not deny that they knew him, saw him crucified, also saw him risen from the dead. So it's interesting how the book of Acts actually begins because the book of Acts is really about, listen, about this, the expansion of the kingdom of God. about the expansion of the kingdom of God. And it starts this way. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, He, Jesus, presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, come on. At this point, you'd be thinking, okay, I've been with you three and a half years. I died on the cross for your sins in your place. I love you so much. And then I rose again on the third day. I've been with you 40 days now. You would think at this point he'd be going, okay, listen, let's start appointing elders, right? Let's start building churches, big buildings that are going to have crosses on top of them. Let's start doing that. It's not what he does. He preaches the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom of God. It's rule and reign now. It's the big deal. It's the most important thing. Do you know how the book of Acts ends? The book end of the book of Acts is amazing. And of course, the apostle Peter is the main guy in the beginning, right? But then it passes to the main guy being the apostle Paul. And we read at the end of Acts in chapter 28, verses 30 and 31, it says this. He, Paul, lived there in Rome uh, two whole years at his own expense. He was really in almost a house uh, arrest. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, this is the guy who planted more churches in that 20-year span of the expansion of the kingdom of God than anybody else. But he's calling people to him to preach the kingdom. And so we learn that the key theme of the New Testament, the key theme of the New Testament is the kingdom of God, that Jesus came to establish his kingdom now Not fully yet until he returns, but that he does reign now. Amen? Jesus is on the throne of heaven and earth now, regardless of what we may believe. So the truth is this, the POTUS, short for the President of the United States, is not the king. Our prime minister is not the king. Saudi kings are not the king. I remember after the election down south not too long ago, um, there were a lot of people who were pretty upset with the results, right? And, uh, and you know, mostly Democrats, obviously. And uh, they, they developed a hashtag, right? And, and the hashtag was not my president. Now, you know, some, some people might feel for them and understand why they would say that. Um, but I, I want to suggest to you that that, that's, that's an interesting hashtag. I understand why they put that out there, and I understand their feelings, but it's not true, is it? You may want to say that, but unless you're one of those people who said, if he gets elected, I'm leaving, I'm going to Canada, if you're still there, he is your president. He is your president. Get over it. i got a better hashtag for you. If in the future, our prime minister, the president, any ruler in this country or in the world lets you down, discourages you, just, just tweet, hashtag, not my king. I came up with that one myself. <laughs> I'm going to register it. So as I'm sure you can see, there's an important relationship here between the church and the kingdom, right? There's a relationship, but what is it? What is that relationship between the two? And I think as we look at these things, it it will lead us to answering the key question that I've asked, and I think out of that we'll answer some of the other questions. The key question is this. What did Jesus really have in mind? Because that's what I'm about. I want to pastor a church that is about what Jesus had in mind. Not what I have in mind, not what you have in mind, not what our denomination has in mind, or any other theologian or whatever. I want to know what did Jesus have in mind. So I've come up with something. It's as short as I could come up with. I'll put it on screen for you. I think it's pretty good and accurate biblically and theologically, so look at it this way. I believe what Jesus really had in mind is this. Jesus' plan A for the redemption and restoration of the world is to build his church, whose sole goal is the expansion of the kingdom of God. So, they're, they're not interchangeable. They're different, but they're supposed to be working together. But the goal, I hope you will see friends here, the goal is the kingdom. For you and for me, for the church, for everything we do, is to welcome people home into the kingdom of God and to realize who their king in this world is today. Because it, here's the, the beauty of it. I can almost give this as a conclusion now, but I'm not done. And that is this: <laughs> it's, it's this. What a good king! Talk about a benevolent king. He died for you. He gave his life for you. He loves you. He's perfect. He knows what's best for you. He wants what's best for you. What a king. So, a big mistake that we often make in the church today is to think that the church is the goal. Jesus did say that he would build his ecclesia, but it wasn't the goal. Of his life and ministry, his goal was and is establishing the expansion of his kingdom. The church then is this. Here, here, here's I think a good definition of what the church is in that relationship. The church is the vehicle. The church is a vehicle that helps us and him build his church, his kingdom. So it's not that he's listen. I, I think I want to show you a passage that will maybe help put this all together for us, but. Some people would say, well, like, yeah, Jesus was all about, you know, social welfare, the poor, feeding, and miracles, and loving, and healing. Yeah, he was. And, and the, re- the reality is, it would appear that he had absolutely zero interest in politics. I mean, do you think? I mean, have you read your Bibles? It, it doesn't seem like he had much of an interest in politics. But politics was all around him, so he certainly had concerns. He certainly had concerns. I think one of the most significant passages is found in Mark chapter 12. An incident happens where Jesus is confronted by the Jewish religious leaders about paying taxes to Caesar. You know that passage? Interesting passage. Let me give you a little bit of background before I read it and, and, and we see our point from it, which will drive us to our conclusion. This particular episode happens midweek in what's called the Passion Week. It happens two days before Jesus is crucified on the cross. Three days earlier, he's arrived in Jerusalem, comes through the gates of Jerusalem, and you, you Christians have been to Sunday school and, and, and so forth. You know what happened on that day, right? What happened on that day? It was, that day was Sunday, and what happened on that day? It's called what? Palm, palm Sunday, because they put palm leaves down. He comes in on the back of a donkey, and, and they're, they're hailing their what? King. Hosanna, Hosanna, they yell. Blessed he is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the king. Our father David, Hosanna in the highest. They give him a king's welcome. Five days later, they and the religious leaders are in unison, crucify him, crucify him. Wednesday's an interesting day. The religious leaders at this point, they see the influence he's been having on people. They've got to get rid of him. And so everything they're trying to do is to corner him, and, and they actually develop a relationship with Herodians, who are political allies of Herod. And so this is a marriage right here, happening right here, of the church, the religious leaders, Jewish leaders, and the state... And they devised this plan to trap Jesus. Let me read you the passage beginning in verse 13 of chapter 12 of Mark. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Sounds like a politician, doesn't it? A little bit of butter here, right? Lathering him up a bit. And then they go on. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? (laughs) This is a trap. It's a serious trap. The, The people are there that have been following him, that love him, that think he's the king. The religious leaders who not so much. Roman guards, Herodians are all there. You got the politics, you got the church. It's all there. And then we read... But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said this to them. He said, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. I mean, there is a whole sermon here, you know that, and I'll really try to make that real brief. But there's a really important point. They think they've got Jesus cornered, don't they? They, they think this is, this is it, okay? Because if he says, no, don't pay the taxes, the Roman guards are going like, to tie him up right now and take him to crucify him. And, and they're going, victory, right? But, but if he says, yeah, do pay the taxes, he's going to lose the people. All the people are going to lose faith in him And so it's interesting what they do. Now, the truth be told, we need to understand this, the Pharisees hated this tax. The Pharisees are the hypocrites because they privately were teaching all of the people of Israel, if you can get out of paying this tax, don't pay it. They were actually preaching and teaching that. And so it's interesting. Jesus, a denarius was a coin used for two reasons, by the way. First, it was the equivalent to a poor man's daily wage. But secondly, this is important it had on it the inscription of Tiberius Caesar himself but it was what was on that coin that is significant when jesus says to them bring me a denarius and let me look at it he knew that none of them the jewish religious leaders would have one they hated that coin in the tax so much they wouldn't even carry the coin it's not that they were poor they were rich a day's wage no problem but they wouldn't carry it for that reason so Either a pleb, like a sinning tax collector Jew maybe would have had one, or a Roman governor would have had one. They give it to Jesus. He then looks at it and says, whose likeness and inscription is on this? Well, they knew what the full answer was, but they don't give it to Jesus. They just say Caesar. It's interesting. The full answer is this, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, high priest. That's what's on the coin. That's why Jesus asked for that coin. They knew that Caesar Augustus was not only seen as a God, but claimed to be God. Now you've got the Son of God, Tiberius, high priest. And so when Jesus answers, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, they marveled for two reasons. A, he defeated their attempt to corner him, didn't he? Jesus is brilliant. He just knows hypocrisy. He knows the truth. He wasn't trying to find a way out. He was just teaching the truth. But B, he declared what he has been preaching for three years. And the Jewish religious leaders knew it when he said it. I am the Son of God. I am your great high priest, your Messiah. Crucify him. Crucify him. I would suggest to you that this unholy marriage of the church and state actually resulted in the crucifixion of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So what is the church? Well, as we've already stated, it's not a building, place, or event. It's you, it's me, it's us, the gathered ones. And at the rock, we have come to define ourselves and the church based on the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, or a repetition from any rocksters. You know this, but I'm going to read it for you. We consider ourselves, our title as a church is this. We're a family of missionary servants. And we get that from the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended. He said, All authority. In heaven and earth. He's king. He has all authority from that point on, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. This is a naming ceremony, and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, this is in a nutshell how we, the church, become the vehicle that expands the kingdom of God. We go and make disciples who make disciples. That is one way for us to describe what the church is. It's a disciple making organism, which, why oftentimes in the Bible it's described as the body of Christ, right? It's a disciple making organism. And so we know that Jesus, of course, doesn't just command us to go, but that he equips us, right? He equips us to go and do his work. And we know that he told his disciples early in Acts chapter 1, which we were at, but a little further on in verse 8, he says this, you will receive power. <laughs> Not political power, but you'll receive the power that you really do need. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the commission for kingdom expansion, isn't it? And it's also the equipping, which is the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. But then he goes further than that. He, he then Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that Jesus gives gifted people to the church. And it tells us in 4, 11 to 16 that he gives apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to do what? Their job description is this, to equip you... <laughs> The saints, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Kingdom expansion. It's, uh, I like to describe it for a pastor. It's like if you do your job well, you're going to work yourself out of a job, right? Because everybody is going to be mature in their faith, grow in their faith, and everyone's going to be able to do the work of ministry. That's our role. So, what is the role of the church today in conclusion? What is the role, would I suggest to you? Should we understand, I think? It is this three things. Number one, it is Jesus' plan A for the redemption and restoration of the world, not politics. Can anybody say amen? The church is Jesus' plan A for the redemption and restoration. Secondly, it's a family of missionary servants. We're a family because we've been baptized into the Father, we're His children. We're servants because we serve our King Jesus and we serve Him by serving others. And we are missionaries because we are sent ones in the power of the Holy Spirit to make disciples and make disciples. Lastly, I want to suggest to you, number three, the church is an incubator. It's a classroom. That's why we come here. We come here and gather on Sundays, go into missional community, group, do Bible studies, have women's groups, men's group, go on retreats. And so we can grow in our faith and... Be better kingdom expanders. So now in light of all these things that we have heard today and learned today about the church and the kingdom, how do we answer these questions that we have? First, let me ask this. What role should your local pastor, should the Rock Church, should the group of churches that are in Squamish, should our denomination have in local government, provincial government, and national government? How about none? I would suggest to you none. Throughout all of history, friends, every time the church develops unhealthy and unholy relationships with politics and governments, it ends badly. It ends badly. It's actually why many of the kingdoms no longer exist. Has anyone seen the Roman Empire these days? It's kind of in ruins. They no longer exist. And what is meant by the separation of church and state? That's a good one. Well, actually a good thing. But it's totally misunderstood in our world today. The concept is actually borrowed from something Thomas Jefferson said. And it's a paraphrase of two clauses from the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. Which says this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Amen. (laughs) This man wasn't really a Christian, by the way, but I say amen to that because what he is saying is no longer is, well, at least in the United States, is government going to be allowed to say one religion will hold sway. We are a Christian country. The Constitution actually says that the government can't do that. But what the government will stand for is the free exercise of all religions and faiths. Thank you at least for now, that's being allowed. That's great. So let me leave you with a few things to challenge and encourage. First, may I suggest, may I suggest this, that expecting your pastor, your local church, your denomination, um, um, large uh, Christian ministries to to have influence and impact in political and government uh, circles, let me suggest to you that it's this. It's a cop-out. It's a cop-out. It's offloading. It's outsourcing the work that you and I are actually supposed to be all about. It gets us off our game. I think there's somebody who'd like to get us to do that. The same person who tried to get Jesus off his game in the wilderness. That's number one. Secondly, may I leave you with, as I said earlier, that new hashtag. When you're discouraged in, in your life today and you're looking around, and even when you're... You know, we're going to look at this next week about the individual Christian being involved in politics and government and a specific passage that teaches us about that. I think you're going to find that very encouraging. But remember, not my king. (laughs) I don't know how many people, my sister, I love her very much. You know, there's every election that happens either in the U.S. or Canada. She's like, oh, I hope this person wins. And when they win, she's like, oh, now things are going to change. And then three to four years later, they don't. (laughs) They all go back on their promises, right? And she's like, hmm... I just want to say, hashtag not my king. It's okay. It's okay. We have a perfect king. Let's focus on him. And so finally, let me leave you with the words of the very first person that Jesus called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God, the apostle Peter. He wrote these words near the end of his life to encourage all of the Christians in the world that you belong to a king. And his kingdom is amazing. He wrote these words. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. My prayer for you is that you will go and live in that light every day and be about the expansion of his kingdom. Invite people home the king is great. His kingdom is awesome. And his kingdom to come is perfect. Pray with me, would you?